Heavenly Father, as we now prepare to receive your holy, inerrant, infallible word, give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know and be established in the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us, through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. It is written. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The book of Jonah starts with the words, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And if we read through the Old Testament, then we would find this familiar phrase used over a hundred times. It is a phrase found in connection with the prophets, a prophetic formula, if you will, indicating that communication from God has been given to an individual who is authorized to deliver it as a messenger from God. So we are immediately made aware that we are looking at a prophetic account. Now, in prophetic accounts found in the Bible, we quite regularly are given some sort of information about the prophet and his context, like when and where he prophesied. Uh, take Amos, for example, which begins like this. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So we know a little about where Amos was from, what he was doing prior to being called as a prophet, and the specific time in which Amos prophesied. But we aren't given any such information about Jonah here. Fortunately, Jonah is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 14, we find this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, 
who was from Gath Hefer. So perhaps Jonah didn't need an introduction here. We already know that he was prophesying in the time immediately after Elijah and Elisha during the reign of Israel's King Jeroboam II, who was one of many of the wicked kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. As Reformed pastor and biblical scholar Richard Phillips points out, the prophets of the northern kingdom engaged in two main tasks. The first was to call the kings and the nation to repentance. We find men like Elijah facing down the priest of Baal and confronting the king over idolatry. But the prophets were also messengers of grace. Over and again, God showed mercy to his wayward people, often through the ministry of these prophets. And as 2 Kings indicates, Jonah had served this type of function. He had delivered the good news that God had been gracious to allow Israel to restore its former borders. This gracious act was meant to renew Israel's hope, to encourage them to repentance, even though Israel had done nothing to deserve God's grace. In fact, they had done quite the opposite. They had acted wickedly. They actually deserved God's wrath. Nevertheless, God had given Jonah a gracious message to deliver. But Jonah's assignment this time was much different, at least in some respects. And this is what we want to examine this morning. In particular, we want to look at the mission given to Jonah by God, the divine directive, I'm calling it. And Jonah's subsequent mutiny against God's call, what I will refer to as the deliberate disobedience. And these two things, mission and mutiny, divine directive and deliberate disobedience which we find in these first three book three verses of the book set the course for this entire story so let's look at the mission given to jonah by god this is jonah's call and we find this in the first in verse two arise go to nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me this is a divine directive. God speaks to Jonah with a very clear, direct, and definitive call. Go to, go to Nineveh, which was a major center of the Assyrian Empire, and call out against them. Call them out for their wickedness. As Tim Keller noted in his book, Rediscovering Jonah, Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. The Assyrians were not only known as a powerful and well-developed civilization during that time, they were also Israel's worst enemy. And they were known in particular to be especially cruel to their enemies, using brutal and grisly torture techniques against them. Nineveh was the military capital of Assyria. This, this was a place of unbounded violence and evil. So in one sense, it wasn't surprising at all that God would pronounce his judgment on them. But this was also highly unusual. For up until that point, Hebrew prophets had not been sent to Gentile cities to deliver a message from the Lord. The Hebrew prophets did pronounce oracles addressed to pagan nations using 
Amos again as an example. Amos actually begins with oracles of judgment against Israel's Gentile neighbors. We see this in other prophets as well. And in fact, Nahum's prophecy is focused entirely on who? On where? Nineveh. But these other prophets had always only been sent to God's people in Israel and Judah. Not Jonah, though, making Jonah's mission here completely unprecedented. And Jonah understood what taking a message of judgment to Nineveh meant, as we will later see. You see, whether the residents of Nineveh recognized it or not, God rules over all of his creation, religious and irreligious, pagan and his own people, and all nations, Assyria included, are accountable to God. And when God sent his messenger to pronounce judgment, it was meant as a warning of impending doom in order that, in order that the people might have an opportunity to turn and repent, that they might respond in time and be saved. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah saying, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah knew then that there was no reason to bring a message of impending doom unless there was a chance of that judgment being adverted. And perhaps the shocking thing here is that God would extend a warning to a pagan nation in order that they might repent. But notice in verse 2 that God refers to Nineveh as that great city. Nineveh was not only the heart of the violent Assyrian empire, it was also one of the largest cities in the ancient world. We're told in chapter 3 that, quote, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It was a large city. It was an important city. It was an influential city. And God, in his sovereign wisdom, had determined it to be a city worth warning of his coming wrath and perhaps even a city worth saving for his glory. Jonah reveals here though that he takes issue with that and how he responds to this call. We're going to get to that momentarily but for now we need to understand that Jonah clearly understood what God had called him to do and the implications that came with it. Jonah was being called to Nineveh to deliver a message from God that would either be met with violent opposition or with repentance. And neither of these seemed appealing to Jonah. Perhaps Jonah was concerned about his safety. Perhaps he was concerned with being seen as a traitor to his country and to his people. He didn't want to be the one to go and warn the Assyrians in order that they might avoid God's judgment. They were Israel's enemies. He was likely fond of the idea that they would face God's wrath. He wanted them to be destroyed. They deserved to be destroyed. And if he went and warned them, though, what if? 
What if they really did repent and God relented? What, what would that mean for Israel? What would it mean for his reputation in Israel as the one who had delivered that message? So let's look at how Jonah responded. And what we discover here is Jonah's deliberate disobedience to the divine directive given to him. There was mutiny against this mission which God had given him. And we see this immediately playing out. Verse 2, God tells Jonah to arise and go. Look at verse 3. But Jonah, you know something's going on with that first word, but, but Jonah rose to flee. God gave Jonah clear instruction. Jonah did something else. Rather than going to Nineveh, verse 3 informs us that Jonah began making his way to Tarshish. Now, that was an interesting choice. Tarshish was a Phoenician city in southern Spain, just west of Gibraltar. It was a, a pagan nation, which is mentioned several times in Scripture, especially in reference to its merchant ships and its identity as a coastland far away. In fact, it was known as the westernmost place in the Mediterranean world. So it was the exact opposite direction from Nineveh, being at the furthest point across the Mediterranean Sea. And why was he going there? Well, verse 3 tells us that Jonah was seeking to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, anyone who knows anything of God knows that trying to flee from God's presence is a vain pursuit, right? We know that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So there is nowhere where we can go to escape from God's presence. Scripture tells us this. David asked in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? And how does David respond to his own question? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. We can't really flee from God's presence. But did Jonah really believe he was going to get away from God? A prophet should know better, right? And he did. It seems that Jonah knew that he could not actually get away from God, but in all likelihood, he was trying to remove himself from where God's presence most re resided and where his word came to the prophets, which was in the temple. Jonah was actually trying to silence God's voice in his life by getting away from the temple. And in doing so, he was hoping to escape this commission the Lord had given to him. But he needed to not only get away from the temple, he was also trying to get away from the land of Israel, from the community of God's people, because they too served as a reminder to him of his prophetic calling and God's word to him. Perhaps this is why Jonah made his escape through Joppa, which is not an Israelite port. He didn't want to be troubled by anyone inquiring why he was seeking transport to where he was going. He, he didn't want to answer questions about his flight from God's people. We like to sin in darkness, right? But alas, he made it to Joppa, and verse 3 tells us that he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, we're only looking at these three verses this morning because there are numerous lessons that can be found in the divine directive given to Jonah by God and in Jonah's deliberate disobedience. There are very practical applications for us in this text. I want to spend the rest of the time I have remaining on just three of them. So first, we need to understand that Jonah's disobedience did not come as a result of him not understanding God's call. Sometimes we have to seek discernment because we aren't quite sure what God might be calling us to. Is is God calling me to take this job or that other one? Is God leading me to go to this place or somewhere else? Is God calling me to to go proclaim the gospel to that pagan nation or this other one? This wasn't Jonah's issue. He didn't go to Tarshish because he was confused about which pagan nation to go to. No, Jonah knew very well what God had called him to do. The divine directive was crystal clear. The reality was that Jonah simply had his own agenda. And this agenda probably involved concern that Nineveh might just heed God's word and repent. And Jonah didn't like the idea that they wouldn't be destroyed by God's wrath. So Jonah made other plans. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, Jonah had his own desires, plans, and ambitions to fulfill. Jonah had his own concepts of how things should be and how best he could serve God. The flesh made war on the spirit. And it seems that the flesh was victorious. And we need to see the issue here. Sinclair Ferguson so wisely points out, it has been well said that our problem in obeying God is not that we do not understand what he is saying, but that we do. Let me say that again. Our problem in obeying God is not that we do not understand what he is saying, but that we do. God has revealed his will to us in his word, and his will is plainly stated. He has told us things like, love your enemies. Well, how do we do that? Pray for them, forgive them, serve them. Our problem isn't often that we don't understand what God's word is calling us to do. Our problem is that we don't really like it. We don't want to do it. We don't see any good reason why God would command us to do this or that. Why should I forgive my enemy? They didn't ask to be forgiven. They didn't show any sign that they were sorry for what they did. They haven't stopped doing what they did to hurt me in the first place. Beloved, our flesh makes war with our spirit. And we are tempted to reject God's clear divine directives. But here's the hard truth for us. We aren't given permission by God to obey what he has plainly told us to do only when it makes perfect sense to us. No, we're called to obey God's word regardless of whether it makes sense to us or not, whether we like it or not. God's instruction is not constrained to our understanding of why he has instructed us to do it. God reserves the right as the ruler of all to call his people to serve him in ways that he has purposed in his sovereign wisdom will bring him glory. Our role is to 
obey. Our profession of faith demands a life that is yielded to God in obedience. Our privilege as his people carries a responsibility so that our sin is compounded according to the measure of the grace and knowledge we have received. We know what we're supposed to be doing. So we must be careful to watch our rebellion against God and his word. We have to resist pursuing our own plans, which we have determined are better for us than what God has instructed us to do. Beloved, don't allow your flesh to be victorious over your spirit. This leads us to our second lesson, which is this. When we pursue our own desires, our disobedience leads us in a downward motion away from God's presence. Did you notice that in these first three verses, that in Jonah's flight from God, he traveled down to Joppa, where he found a vessel going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, he got on the ship and went down into it. He is going down and down, deeper and deeper, and he will be plunged even deeper still, as we will see next Sunday. This is what our sin does. And as ridiculous as trying to escape God's presence might seem, people do this, don't they? They try to silence God's voice in their lives. They, they don't want to hear what God calls them to. They, they don't want to be reminded of how they have disobeyed God. They, they don't want to continue to experience the guilt that this brings. So they remove themselves from where they most sense God's presence. They remove themselves from worship. They disconnect themselves from God's word proclaimed in worship. They detach themselves from the community of God's people. When we are in rebellion against God, living in unrepentant sin, ignoring what God has clearly instructed us to do, we try to avoid other Christians and the church. So we need to be... Pay careful attention to our desires concerning our worship of God and our participation in the life of the church. Our lack of desire to be in worship, our lack of desire to be with God's people could very well be caused by a sin issue in our lives, which is causing us to attempt to flee from God's presence. We don't want to hear God's voice because we don't want to be confronted with our sin. Jonah teaches us, though, that we can try to ignore God but he does not ignore us or our sin. That is true of Jonah. It is also true of Nineveh. And the glorious theme of the book of Jonah is that God graciously pursues both Jonah and Nineveh in his great love and mercy. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. But there's something else we need to notice here concerning sin. Don't miss, don't miss that when we plot in our hearts to rebel against God's commands, sometimes doors of disobedience open before us. As Sinclair Ferguson notes, when we have a heart to rebel against God, there will frequently be providential means put before us to give us the opportunity. And indeed, this seems to be the case with Jonah. 
As another commentator points out, verse 3 is terse in its progression of verbs, one leading simply to the other without apparent space for reflection. Jonah rose, he went, he found, he paid the fare. How often sin works this way. Once we have given ourselves permission to disobey God, the sinful world is likely to arrange for rapid progression. Charles Spurgeon once told a a fitting story of a school friend who had a very bad temper. Uh, Spurgeon recalled that whenever this individual's temper would flare up, which was often, that he would always begin throwing things. And Spurgeon observed what struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he was angry, but that whenever he was angry, there was always something at hand to throw. Isn't that interesting? These providences aren't permission from God to disobey. They aren't gracious excuses, as Sinclair Ferguson says. Rather, they are wise tests. The reality is that Satan is eager, always eager, to open doors of disobedience for us when we are looking for opportunities to follow the sinful desires of our hearts. We must recognize that these are tests and resist them. So test the spirits, as Scripture instructs us to do. God's spirit is not the only spirit at work in our lives. Sinclair first and wisely advises, do not be guided by providences when you are refusing to be guided by God's word. Do not take the events of your daily life as your instructor when you have not taken God's word as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. Beloved, you can't ever say, well, God must have intended for me to do this or that simply because the opportunity opened before me. If it isn't in accordance with God's word, it was never God's will for your life. The third and final lesson that I want to draw to our attention here is that we mustn't have a small-minded view of to whom God might intend to extend his favor. The reality in the case of Jonah that God had in his sovereign wisdom, he had determined that Nineveh was a great city worthy of being saved. By Jonah's estimation, though, Nineveh was only a wicked city deserving of destruction. And while Jonah had been pleased to deliver a gracious message to his own people, Israel, one that they did not deserve, he refused to warn Nineveh of God's coming judgment. And it could be that we, like Jonah, are perfectly okay when God is merciful to us and to those we like, but we are not okay when God is merciful to those whom we hate or despise. If this is our attitude, though, it demonstrates that we don't have a true understanding of ourselves. For we, for we too, really are unworthy sinners. All of us are unworthy sinners. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. But the good news is that even while we were yet enemies, God saved us. The good news is that God extends his grace and his mercy to unworthy sinners. And through faith, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
As Richard Phillips points out, the person who realizes this will never look on the gospel offer of forgiveness to everyone with anything other than wonder and joy. But sometimes, perhaps, we don't look at it as such. We find it offensive that those we have deemed unworthy might actually be recipients of God's grace rather than recipients of his wrath. If we're honest with ourselves, then we might be able to identify places. We might be able to identify cities, people groups who we would really honestly love to see God's judgment fall upon rather than having a heart for their salvation. And we fail to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ joyfully to them because of this. So we must be very, very careful at this point not only because we are disobeying what Jesus Christ has clearly instructed us to do, freely sharing the gospel to all people, but also because perhaps if we don't have enthusiasm to proclaim God's word to the wicked, it's more than likely because we have come to believe that we stand before God on some merit of our own. In other words, we see ourselves as worthy to receive God's grace but not others. Dearly beloved, the message of Jonah is that God desires for all nations, all peoples, all tribes and tongues to repent and to believe, even us. And he calls us to go and to deliver the bad news of his impending judgment in order that those he has chosen might receive the good news, that he has sent his only son as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Let us not fail to trust God in his word. We have been given the privilege to be his people by his grace. We have responsibilities that come with that privilege. Let us then not fail to respond to God's call in faithful obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, Lord, that you would offer grace even to us, the worst of sinners, unworthy sinners. Lord, help us to see in our own need of your grace, others' need of your grace. Lord, stir within us a passion to go and to proclaim the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us a heart for the salvation of all nations. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us to obey by your spirit. Lord, because we know our flesh is weak and often we fail. So we thank you for your forgiveness and your grace. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe.